welcome. Let me ask you now as we come to the scripture to, uh, to pray with me. Uh, Father in heaven, uh, you say that your word is a lamp to our feet, the light to our path. It is this word by which we have life. It is this word that implants this seed of your truth within us that grows. And so, Father, I pray that even now you would be with us to cause this living word to live within us, just in our minds, God, but in our very lives. Please enable us to see, enable us to understand, enable us to believe, enable us to live. This, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Turn, please, to 1 Timothy in chapter 6. I want to read just the last two verses of this letter. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 20 and 21, please. 1 Timothy chapter 6. <clears throat> Hear the word of God. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace, grace be with you. Now, we started this letter back in January, as I recall. So we've been here a while. And now Paul begins to sum up. He begins to lay out in the very end, uh, to press home, if you will, the point that he has been making to Timothy and therefore as well to us. And, and he begins, you, you get a sense that there's something very personal here uh, because of this little expression just that opens verse 20. Uh, Paul writes, oh, Timothy. He doesn't do that very often. He doesn't use that expression, that kind of expression very often. Oh, oh, Timothy. You get this sense that on the one hand, it's very personal, very very heartfelt. He knows this young man he calls his son, his son in the faith. And, and so he, he knows what he's written to him. He, he knows the task before Timothy. He know, knows what's coming, if you will, in this life of ministry because Paul has experienced it himself. And so he understands where Timothy, if you will, is in his life. And, and, he, and he stops at the very end and just says, oh, Timothy. But on the other hand, it's, it's a sense of seriousness as well. Oh. So he says, Timothy, I want to press home something to you because it's of great value. I want you to guard this deposit that's been entrusted to you. Guard this deposit that's been entrusted to you. Get the sense that this is a great responsibility, that this is an overwhelming responsibility. Oh, Timothy, make sure you don't miss this. Oh, Timothy, of all the things that I've said, Timothy, all the things that you know that have come from me, I want to make sure that you get this, this thing down, and I want to make sure that above all else, because everything hinges on this, because all else, that you would guard this deposit that's been entrusted to you. But he, he leaves him not just there, but he leaves with this final word, this great, really short, but great benediction. Grace B. 
be with you now. What's striking about this that doesn't come across initially, this is where we should have had a southern translator of this letter because a southerner would have translated this, grace be uh, with y'all. Or if it was a big church, all y'all, right? Because this you here is plural. You get the impression that Paul's saying to Timothy, guard the deposit, may God's grace be with you in that. But, 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 but that isn't exactly what's being expressed here. There's guard the deposit, perhaps a breath, and then now to the whole church, because this deposit is being guarded, grace is with you. And the question is, what's this Deposit. What does it mean that there's been a deposit made? Now, we know what a deposit is. It's a language of banking. And when a deposit is made, you, you leave something with the bank. Now, it's not the banks. It didn't originate with the bank. The bank's just holding it in trust. The bank's just holding it. It's still yours. You just made a deposit. I remember when I was a little kid, I used to visit my grandmother. I used to go to her house, and she'd most often be cooking. That's what she did, at least that time of the day. When I arrived after school, I would go there, and she would say, deposit your behind in that chair. Because I would just sort of stand there and watch her, and I would drive her a bit crazy. And so she would say, deposit yourself in that chair. What did she mean? Well, she meant sit down, but I was making a deposit. I wasn't the chairs. <laughs> He was just holding me. And, and the goal of that deposit, at least from the chair's perspective, is to hold me without harm. So that it actually hold me up. When you put your deposit in the bank, the, the language, at least the ancient language, is to, 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 to not harm this deposit. To hold it, to not harm it. So it would know no harm. To keep it safe, if you will. So, so Paul's saying to Timothy, you've been given something. It didn't originate with you. You didn't initiate it. It didn't come from you, but it came to you. Now, I want you to keep it. I want you to guard it. I want you to keep it unharmed. I want you to keep it safe. I don't want it to be defiled by you. I want to be able to look at this in a year, and it's the same. I want want generation after generation to be able to see this and to know that it's exactly as I left it. That is the good deposit. I want people to know this deposit, not to be changed. So the question is then, what was really deposited with him? Well, we've been reading this letter through. We know a number of things. Number one, that we realize that Timothy had been ordained, as we would put it, that would be our language, to ordain to this ministry as the pastor of this church in Ephesus when he was, that is when he was ordained, when he was set apart by the church to have this particular calling, this particular role in the church, if you will, that Paul says the prophetic words were spoken and and he was gifted. He was given gifts by the Holy Spirit, no doubt to preach and to teach. He was gifted, if you will, for that particular task that was left with him. And and, and in 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul writes to Timothy, he says, I want you to fan into flame the gift that was given to you. So, so he was to tend that gift. It was, it was deposited, if you will, given to him by the Holy Spirit. And, and he was to, 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 to fan that into flame, to, to use it. In fact, in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, I'm sorry, chapter 4 of 1 Timothy, verse 16, Paul says to him this. He says, keep a close watch on yourself 
and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you'll save both yourselves and your hearers. He says, I want you to keep a watch on this deposit, this gift that's been given to you, to make sure, if you will, that it's good and true and right. And so there's a sense in which Paul is saying, you've been given this gift. It's been entrusted to you. Now guard it. Use it. But, but I think bigger than this, not just me, I'm irrelevant here, but almost everybody else who thinks about this passage says, yes, that's true, but, but, but it's bigger than that. The, 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 this deposit that's been given to Timothy is not just this gift to be able to preach and teach, but it's this gospel, this truth, this um, faith that he's been given to preach. It's that that's more important in a sense than the gift. There's a gift to talk and a gift to teach and explain things. The key is, what is he teaching? What is he explaining? And that's really this, this deposit. Paul knew himself as one who had been given this deposit, if you will. For instance, in chapter 1 of First Timothy, verse 11, Paul speaks of this. He says, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. He said, I've been entrusted with this gospel. And it's the glory of God. It's the glory of this sovereign one. It's this glory of this God who's blessed, that is, who's, who's happy, who sees the end from the beginning. And when he sees the end of it, he's, he says, that's exactly right. And thus he, God himself, is content with that. He's happy. He's filled with joy because of what's coming down, what's going to happen, what it's going to be like. He sees that. And so Paul says, I've been entrusted with this glorious gospel, this gospel of the glorious God, this gospel of the glorious blessed God. I've been given that. And so there's a sense in which he's passing it along to Timothy. Now remember, this doesn't just go from one to the other and then to another and it's always embodied in one person. That wasn't Paul's point. He says, Timothy, in your position where you are in the midst of the church, I'm entrusting you to protect this gospel to guard this gospel understand timothy what you have been given here what you're entrusted with it was interesting in the ancient world often if someone wanted to make a deposit because banks weren't like banks today if you will but in the ancient world often if one were going away and you had valuables to be left and you wanted them to be protected you would take them to the temple you remember in Ephesus, there's this huge temple, the temple to the goddess Diana. And it was, a, it was one of the wonders of the ancient world. It was known. People would come to it. No doubt when people would come, if they had valuables on their trip, they would leave them on deposit in that temple. And others, perhaps from Ephesus, if they were leaving or had valuables that they wanted protected, would leave them there. So you get the picture. Is Paul playing off this, being able to say, listen, I'm le- there's a great deposit of great value, and I'm leaving it in the very temple of God in the context of his church. Remember, we spun off of Chapter 3, verse 15 in this letter to say this was the reason for which Paul was writing in the first place. Paul said, listen, verse 14 of chapter 3 says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. He's saying, listen, church, you have this truth. You're to support it. 
Timothy, you're to guard it. It's this deposit. In your particular place, Timothy, as pastor of the church, the elders of the church, the leaders of the church, they understand their primary responsibility is to make sure this truth remains. It is not defiled, not compromised, not diluted. Generation to generation to generation to generation, the same truth been entrusted with it. It's that deposit. Now, it didn't originate with you. It was given to you. One ancient church father put it like this. He says, what is meant by the deposit? It is this. It is that which is committed to you, not that which is invented by you. The deposit is that which you have received, not that which you have devised. It is not a thing of your wit, but of your learning. It is not a thing of private assumption, but public teaching. It's not a thing brought forth from you, but a thing brought to you. You're not its author, but its keeper. You're not its leader, but a follower. See, that's this deposit. So we think about having the gospel as the church. There's no ego involved here. This isn't something we thought up. This isn't something we devised. It is something we received. In fact, when Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he says, I'm passing along to you that which is of first importance, that which I have received. So Paul took no claim of authorship here. He said, I didn't devise this gospel. It's something that I received. I met Jesus. I I, I met the other apostles. This is something I've received. And I'm simply passing it along. He knew he was entrusted with it. We know that we're entrusted with his gospel. And we are because, because of the spirit of God who's come upon us. And he dwells within us. He's made us the very household of God. We belong to God. and, 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 And he dwells among us. And when the spirit of God dwells among us, then we have the truth of Jesus because the Holy Spirit has come to reveal Jesus to us. And so here we have it. And so Timothy's been entrusted with it in a special way as pastor of the church, as one of the elders of the church, as the leaders of the church entrusted with this gospel, a responsibility that no one would volunteer for. That's why the James in James chapter 3 says that no one should really desire to be a teacher because there's a standard that's held. But nonetheless, there are some who have called Timothy being one of those and thus given to him is this responsibility to guard the gospel and then the church even through him. This gospel given to the church. No surprise, Jesus said, I've given you the keys to the kingdom. When Jesus spoke of the keys to the kingdom, he said, what that means for you is that whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. What did he mean by that? Well, that's forgiveness language. That's the kind of language that Jesus would use in the context of of forgiveness. And so he says, what what you have, church, is the keys to the very forgiveness that comes from God. And, And it's not inherent to you, but it's something that's been 
given to you. You've been entrusted with these keys. That is to say, you've been entrusted with this gospel because it's this gospel that frees people from their sin. And so as this gospel is declared and people believe, then that's the power you see. That's the authority to loose them from their sins. And those who do not believe are bound in their sins. So there's this this sense all the time that the church has this gospel, this gospel that's able to bind and loose, that's able to free people from their sins or hold them in if they don't believe. And it's that kind of thing that we have. That's the deposit. And if that ever gets diluted or ever gets compromised or ever gets defiled, notice what we're losing. Everything. So Paul says, maintain, guard, keep, watch over this deposit that's been given to you. See, this gospel, Paul, Paul speaks of it even as he writes to Timothy. It wasn't his intent to lay it out necessarily in any great terms, but in chapter 1 and verse 15, Paul, Paul talks about this gospel at work in his own life. He says this, he says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. In other words, he's saying, listen, this is it. This is what we must have, the mercy of God. And it comes through this gospel that leads then to eternal life. In chapter 2 and verse 5, Paul says, But there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. He says, this is it, you see. This is the guts of it. There is one mediator between God and human beings. As I, as I led with last Sunday, if you were here, the sense that Jesus represents God to us because he knows God, because he is God. And he represents us to God because he knows us, because he is us. And thus he meets in himself God in us. And he satisfies everything in God. And he satisfies everything for us. That's the gospel. And then this one, in chapter 3 and verse 16, Paul says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. When he says great, he's, he's, he could be, if he were 16, he would have translated this as awesome. And for once, he would have been using the word correctly. Oh, yeah, this, is, this is awesome. This is the standard for awesome. If this is the standard for awesome, we'd never use that word again for anything else. But this strikes awe in us. Great, he says, is the mystery of godliness, mystery of that which is true concerning God. And when he says mystery, he says we wouldn't know it except it be revealed to us. It's been revealed to us by God the Holy Spirit by his word he speaks to us this truth I often wonder how do we know that the middle criminal the middle the middle cross those three criminals on that day was the very son of God and while he was dying he as we put it in the creed descended into hell that has experienced the wrath of God when he was forsaken how do we know that My suspicion is if you'd been there that day, he wouldn't have looked all that different than anybody else. The other two, we know it. Because it's been revealed to us. 
because Jesus rose from the dead to speak it to the Holy Spirit coming to convince each of us of that truth. And this is the great mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, the incarnation. He was vindicated by the Spirit, the resurrection, because it was the Holy Spirit who declared Jesus to be the Son of God by, through the resurrection of the dead, Romans chapter 1. He was seen by angels, the ascension, when Jesus ascended. Then it was witnessed by these angels who turned to the people and said, Why do you wonder? This Jesus who have ascended in this way will come back. Proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. He taken up in glory. We taken up in glory on the day of his return to be with him. That's it, you see. That's, that's all of it. The coming of Jesus, who he was, his ascension, rule and reign, the truth that's proclaimed. We believed it and now we will with him be taken up in glory. This gospel, that's what we've been entrusted with. Nobody else talks like this. Nobody else believes like this. And if anybody's going to hear it, we must speak it. And if anyone's going to believe it, we must tell them. It's been left with us, this truth. We must protect it. Protect it in the sense that we mustn't dilute it or compromise it or allow it to decay in any way. Because you see, if we do, then we haven't got it. And if we haven't got it, then there isn't this salvation that comes through faith in Jesus. We must believe in him. It's of great value. That's why it needs to be guarded. We, we see this throughout the scripture, this value of this gospel you know it from the famous verses as i call them the football verses they're always up there john three sixteen, for god so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life for for god did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him whoever believes in him is not condemned But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Do you see? We all do the value of this gospel. It leads to eternal life, life with God. If it's not believed, it leads to condemnation. Chapter 8 of John's gospel, Jesus speaking, verse 21, speaking to various ones, he says, I'm going away and you'll seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Then verse 24, says, I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. That's one of the most sobering sentences. Because Jesus says, if you don't believe in me, you're going to die in your sins. There's only two ways to die. You either die in your sins, or you die in the Lord, if you will. You die believing in him. And he says, if you die in your sins, then your sins will condemn you. Spend a great deal of time, don't we, thinking about, well, on the one hand, we spend a great deal of energy avoiding thinking about death. We also spend then a great deal of time worrying about how we're going to die. 
But the most important aspect of all this is to reckon the fact that we are going to die, however one dies. Once one is dead, it doesn't matter how it happens. But the fact that you did die matters a great deal. And the question is, do you die in your sins or not? And if you die in your sins, then you die facing God, having been his enemy. If you die in the Lord, then you die facing God as his forgiven friend. And you see, that's the message of the gospel with which we've been entrusted. If we get that wrong, then we get everything wrong in all of life. John chapter 14, Jesus lays it out as well very explicitly. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Verse 6, no one comes to the Father except through me. There isn't any other way. That's the message of the gospel. We have it. We have a message of Jesus. Here's how it is that we're reconciled with God. Here's how it is that we enter into the presence of God. It's only through Jesus. And so, so, so that's the message. We get that wrong. We need no one to him. If we present the wrong Jesus, then no one to him. If we present Jesus as simply one who has been a good example, one that we are to follow, then we help no one ultimately. Because first and foremost, he is the one who for us has lived and died so that his righteousness can be given to us and so that his life can be taken for hours so that we might live. If we get that wrong and we miss laying out who Jesus is and what he did, then we have diluted the good deposit and we have nothing for ourselves or, or for the world. So, so we need to hold, we need to guard this word so it's not defiled because if it's defiled then we, we lose everything. We need to watch it and guard it because there are enemies against it. We read of the enemy of our souls, even this one the scripture refers to as Satan or the devil or the demons and all of that and this, this unseen world of evil that, that in whatever ways comes against us. The scripture speaks of this evil one in Second Corinthians chapter 4 as the one who blinds the minds of unbelievers so that... They cannot see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. The, the ultimate goal of this one who is the evil one is so that we won't see Jesus. You can see why, because if we see Jesus and we, we get it, we see the glory of God in the face of Christ and we trust in him, then this evil one has lost us, if you will, but, 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 and he comes against God in that way. And so this, this enemy of our souls, and so we need, therefore, to, to guard this, this gospel there's the world that thinks so differently than we concerning who Jesus is. There's our sin that is residing in us. Even those of us who are believers, the sin still plays in us and with us. And it's that sin that evokes pride in us and says, I really don't need that. I really can do this myself. That, that pride that desires to be praised by others so we want to exalt ourselves rather than trusting in God and 
exalting him, this, this pride in us that doesn't really want to see ourselves as we really are in the presence of God that is sinners worthy of his wrath. And we'd rather be able to say, I can fix this problem myself. I can do it on my own. I don't need to be rescued. I don't need to be saved, if you will. And, and thus we turn against God. That's just in us to do that. And then, then there's this great danger once we believe this, that this sin's still at work in us, if it's not conquered, this sin that's at work in us, that, that wants us to put our own spin up on it, our own face on it. We'd like to speculate. We'd like to come up with something that no one else has really ever thought of before. Normally it takes you, you have to get your own TV show for that one. But, but, but we want to think of things that people haven't thought of before so that, oh, this church or this pastor or this Christian, they've really got it. Oh, wow, that's it. This. And so we add or we detract. Paul says, no, 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 no. Take it as revealed by way of the apostles, by way of the scripture that you have. And don't add, don't take, hold this of all the enemies. And you see, we guard it with our minds. That is, we guard it by thinking rightly about it, by studying it. The scripture says we're to love God with our minds. And so we want to make certain that we understand it. If we don't understand it, then we don't know what we're guarding. And so we need to study and we need to know what this truth is. Not so we can add to it, not so we can subtract from it, but we, so we know what it is. And so we need to have our noses in the scriptures and our minds there so, so we can understand, we can hold it in our, in our minds. But not only that, we're to love it with a very hearts, our souls, that is, we're to embrace it, we're to love this truth. We're not simply to know it in our heads and acquiesce to it and say, oh yes, that's truth. But there should be a spark in us to say, no, no, that's my life. I love this. I embrace this. If I lose this, I've lost everything. If I have this, I have everything. And, and so you see, there's this sense of guarding and not just with our minds so we can pass all the multiple choice tests in the world on what this is. Yes, that's true. But we need to embrace it with our very hearts. This isn't a cold truth. This is life. And so you see, we, we, we guard it by loving it, by embracing this truth, by loving it. John Wesley, he said, I want to be a man of this, of one book. I want to know it, and in knowing it, loving it, because he says, it's through this book that I know the way to heaven, is how he put it. So we guard it with our minds by knowing it. We, we guard it with our very hearts and souls by believing and loving it. We guard it as well as we speak it. It hasn't been deposited for us, and we're not to guard it in the sense to keep others from it. We guard it to keep it from being diluted. We don't guard it to keep it from other people. We don't have this special, as Paul puts it in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20, we, we don't have this special knowledge. See, we're not smarter than everybody else. That isn't it at all. Some of us are smart, some of us not so much, just like everybody else. That isn't it. 
isn't that you need this special trick, this special formula, this special thing that, oh, if you had that, then you'd get it. No, that isn't at all. We don't keep this separate. This is, we're not trying to make a, a community of people that excludes anybody. We want to include everybody who believes. And so we guard this truth by keeping it public, by keeping it out there. You say it and I say it and we check what we're saying. So it's a public thing. It isn't hidden. It's public. It's out there. We express it. And of course we guard it by obeying it. By living it out and living out all the implications of this truth, of this, of this faith. Again, not to be kept, but to be lived out. To be guarded so it's pure and true, but understood and lived out. So thus, we guard it and all of that. In this great sense, that if we have it, we have everything. If we don't have it, we've lost everything for ourselves and the world. This is that value. So this question for us as a church, what's the most important thing that we do? What's the thing we do first and foremost? It's not the only thing we do, but everything falls from this. What's true for the church of Jesus Christ? What must be true for the church of Jesus Christ? How is it that someone picks a particular church? We send students out all the time. We give these long talks about how do you find your next church? What do you look for? And, and again, you know, our tendency is to look for, for, for what we see and to say, oh, I like how that looks or I like how that feels. But the most important thing in any place one worships is the deposit. Is it the same truth that was left by Jesus? Is it the same truth that was left by the apostles? Nothing added, nothing taken. The great danger for us is building this pretty building is that people will come here because of it. Now, I hope we have the truth right. <laughs> and therefore, I hope they come for whatever reason and we'll give them the truth. But, but that's always the danger, isn't it? The danger is that they come because they like the music. They come because of the reason my wife comes, because the pastor's cute. <laughs> right? None of that. None of that, of course, ultimately matters. What ultimately matters is we've guarded the deposit because you see, it's through this truth that grace comes. This final benediction, this final word that, that Paul lays out at the end of this letter. In fact, he does it in the end of every letter. He, he says this phrase in one way, shape, or form, grace be with you. Now, what's interesting about the letters of Paul is that he always begins in some way, shape, or form by saying grace to you. And he ends his letters by saying, grace be with you. In, in, in 1 Timothy, it's, it's a little more um, veiled than in other places, but you'll notice in 1 Timothy in chapter 1, the, the verse 2, he says, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So if you take out the little parentheticals, you have to Timothy, grace, mercy, peace. So to Timothy, grace to you. This is, this is what he hopes. This is his desire in writing this letter. Why does Paul write? He writes 
because he wants the reader, he wants Timothy in this case, he wants Timothy to receive grace. And then at the end of the letter, he assumes and hopes that he has. So he says, in the beginning of the letter, I want grace to come to you. Now, after you've read this letter, I want grace to go with you. So what does he think about what he's writing? He must think about what he's writing between the two and the with, that this is a means of grace. And you see, that is it. The word of God is for us a means of grace. It's the means by which he brings his grace to us. Now, what's grace? Well, grace is what's been deposited in the gospel. The same church you have, the very grace of God. Because you have the very truth of God. You have the very word of God. You have the very means by which grace comes. You see, I read at our offering time from Romans chapter 10, verse 17, that grace, I'm sorry, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And you see, it's this word of Christ, this word of God that brings faith to us. And it's that grace that comes, you see. This free gift grace means unmerited favor. It's something that we couldn't earn on our own. It's something that we don't have enough to pay for. It's given to us freely. And so we speak of grace as being unmerited favor. We're unworthy of it. We're undeserving of it. In fact, we could say we're ill-deserving because we deserve the opposite of what we get. Our friend Jerry Bridges puts it like this. He says, God's grace is God's goodness, God's blessing, God's unmerited favor to guilty sinners who deserve judgment. The first part of that sentence we really like. The second part of that sentence can, but it's true. That's who we are. We're guilty sinners who deserve judgment. And what do we get? Life, forgiveness, reconciliation with God, all of that, that's God's grace. How do we know that? How does that come to us? And Paul says, it comes through this word. That's why Moses could write that these words, he says in Deuteronomy chapter 32, these words are not idle words that he's written. He says, but these words are your life. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the, from the, mouth, from the mouth of God. And Peter would write in 1 Peter, in chapter 1, verse 22, he says, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. He says, your new life has come to you because of this living and abiding word of God. He says, for all flesh is like grass and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the gospel, the good news that was preached to you. He said, when this word was preached to you, Because the word of God is living. Hebrews chapter 4 speaks of the word of God is living. 
He says, this word is alive. And it brings life to you. It's the very means of grace. So you see, we have as the church, Timothy was entrusted with, the church was entrusted with, we're entrusted with. This means of grace, this very, very word of God, the gospel. We're to guard it, to make certain always that that which we speak of is that which the apostles spoke of. That we're not inventing something, that we're not reimagining it, that we're not re-imaging it. That there is no secret that we're finding that hasn't been found, that hasn't been laid out before, even by these very ones. And so God, to make sure we'd keep it right, gave us a picture. He gave us a picture that we can see, a picture that we can even hear, even smell, even touch, even taste. see it, it's here. His bread and juice on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And after giving thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is given for you. And in the same way, he took the cup. And again, he gave this to his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. He said, as often as we eat of this bread, we drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We see it. We can even hear it. I have a blind friend who is unable to come to church these days, but when he did, often said that his favorite part of communion was to hear the bread being torn. To hear the juice being poured. We can see it. We can hear it. We can smell it. We can touch it. We can taste it. And all of that, he says, I want to bring your whole person to bear on who Christ is and what he did. I want you to remember his death. I want you to proclaim it until he comes. He says, I want you to realize that he died, yes, and he rose again, yes. Why? For our sins. He lived in such a way that he would, he, would, he, would, he would obey everything that God had commanded. He would die in such a way that he would die for us so that our sins would be forgiven. He would take our penalty upon himself. And he says, all of that's here. In fact, Jesus would say that I'm present here. This is my body. This is my blood. It doesn't mean that this changes in any way. It simply means this. That while he may not be here physically, he's here spiritually among us. And we in his presence. And he said, this is the gospel. Me for you. Don't ever lose that. You're entrusted with this. And through it comes grace. Grace to give you strength to live. Grace give you hope for the next day, grace to give you encouragement for eternal life, grace 
to reconcile us to God. This is everything. Let's pray. Father in heaven. Pray for me, for us. That we believe the gospel. We really see it and understand it. Regardless of what the evil one throws our way, regardless of what the world throws our way, regardless of what our sin tries to bring up to us, that we'd be able to put aside all speculations and all questions and doubts and receive from you that which you have given through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Receive this grace. We may know that we've been reconciled to him, know that our sins have been forgiven, know that we've been declared righteous in his sight, know that we've been adopted into his family, know that you're at work in us, transforming us to make us to be the people you desire us to be that is in the very image of Christ, to know that a day will come when we'll see you as you are, Lord Jesus, and to be transformed, to be like you in glory. To know that every moment of our lives, God, are in your hand. And that you're with us. Please, I pray. Through your word and spirit. The word even preached and now eaten will enable us to walk in faith by your grace. Please take this bread and this juice and set it apart in a a way that enables us to know that Jesus is as close to us now as this bread and juice and that he with us receives us to himself and through him to you. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.